You're listening to a sermon from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Presbyterian Church, Covington, Tennessee. Our mission is to proclaim Christ's kingdom through word and deed. You can learn more about us at 1pc-covington.org or join us for worship at 403 South Main Street, Covington, Tennessee. Today's scripture reading is comes from John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. It's found, found on page 887 in your pew Bibles if you want to take this time to um, turn there and follow along as we read from the Gospel of John, page 887. Let us pray. Holy God, we just thank you that because you are one and because you are three that your spirit resides with us Um, so as we read these scriptures we just pray that um, your spirit would illuminate them father prepare our hearts um, to receive your word and we just pray that you would silence any voices um, that are demanding our attention that are that are not you we pray for your voice only so that we may hear your word and then go and do it through jesus christ our savior amen John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Now when he he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. John follows the story of Jesus at the wedding in Cana of turning the water into wine with um, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, of going in and, and throwing out the money changers and those who were selling in, um, in the temple itself. Um, if you have read through the Bible, you will know that uh, in what's called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all follow a very similar um, uh, structure and narrative flow, that the, the story, there's a story of a cleansing of the temple during Jesus' last week before the crucifixion. And so here at the beginning, it's, it's interesting that we have this. And there's different possibilities because uh, people kind of think, well, was there two cleansings? 
what, did John get it wrong or, or, or what happened? Um, and I wanted to point out there's three possibilities of what's going on here. One is um, that there was one incident where Jesus cleansed the temple and John, for editorial reasons, moves it to the beginning of his gospel to this part in his gospel. If you will notice, um, we've been following a close timeline where on the next day and the next day, and John doesn't tell us that this was following at a certain time. It just says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And it doesn't point out a specific time, so it would not be a contradiction if that was the case. It would also be possible that uh, Jesus did this at the early part of his ministry, closer to the chronology that John gives us. And, and for some reason, Matthew and Mark and Luke, because of their editorial reasons, since they only discuss Jesus entering to Jerusalem at one time, uh, whereas John has him there three or four years, that we see uh, they might have moved it just to kind of gather all of the things that happened in Jerusalem in one part of their narrative, which is a possibility. And if you look there, there's, there's nothing that would say it had to have taken place at this time. That is a possibility. I am personally becoming more and more leaning to the idea that there were actually two times, two incidents where Jesus did this. Um, it, it's... it's for example, there's details in the story here that don't match uh, the details in Matthew and Mark. The, the whip, for instance, Jesus' words, the confrontation with um, the Jewish leadership afterwards, those don't take place in the other words. And I think there is something in us that naturally tries to take things and harmonize and simplify to make a simpler narrative uh, when we encounter interesting things like this in the Gospels. But real life really has bizarre repetitions. Maybe you've gone through things that you've looked at and feel like, this is deja vu, haven't I done this before? And so there's, there's times where scriptures mention things that I think later scholars try to say, well, this is obviously a fabrication. This cannot have happened twice. Let me point out two examples of things that could be narrated from our own life in a way that people would think, um, could that really have happened? So I imagine a hundred years from now, somebody might look at the history of this congregation and say, now whoever gathered this together is really got confused because you're telling me there was um, Hugh who went to Florida and then not long after that there was John who went to Florida? And there was a Matt who had a wife named Robin, and then a Scott who had a wife named Robin, and on top of that, a Ricky who had a wife named Holly, and a James who had a wife named Holly, and then a Mark who had a wife named Holly. Obviously, these are three different names for the one person. They have a lot more names than John and Mary and Jesus. I mean, they, you know, there's incidents in our own life that sound like deja vu. For example, if I said... This was the year that JSU, my alma mater, Jacksonville State University, won the OVC championship and then lost in the football playoffs in the second round. Memphis also lost the AAC championship to UCF. Don't make pick a scab. And Alabama won a championship game against Georgia in large part by swipping their quarterback around. What year would I be talking about? Well, the past two you want to remember, we did not win the national championship against Georgia this year. Some of you delight in that, so I'll bring it back up. 
Life has strange resemblances. I'm sure you've gone through things that could be twice. So just to say, um, whether Jesus is doing this here or whether John is taking this here, the point is he wants to make us think about something before we get into the rest of the gospel. Jesus is announcing something. And it's something about Jesus' identity. Interestingly enough, an identity that the other Gospels wanted to make sure we hear. For here is Jesus coming and saying, this is my Father's house. You would make my Father's house. It should be a place of prayer, not a marketplace, not a, a place for trade. You would make my Father's house a house of trade. And He runs out those who are... Um, exchanging the money for the, the temple tax and who are selling the, the animals to be sacrificed. And he wants all of this, which is taking place in a way that would distract and prevent people from worshiping. He runs them out because of his zeal for his father's house. And they come to him and they say, why do you do this? What is the sign and he gives us a sign that kind of gives us a theme to understand the rest of the gospel. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. So we're already being told we're looking for a destruction and a rebuilding, a resurrection, because it tells us the disciples did not understand this until after the resurrection. So we go into the gospel with the resurrection not being a surprise, but something that we interpret everything we hear that he's pointing us to and wants us to understand. Incidentally, this is one of the interesting places where John's gospel, which a lot of people say has nothing to do with the other gospels, interlocks in a way that they would not be complete without one another. When Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will build it in three, rebuild in three days, or John doesn't bring that back up. But in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, at Jesus' trial is the accusation that He said He would destroy the temple and raise it again in three days, which they never report that Jesus had said this. They're reporting something Jesus said that is only recorded in John, and there's just several places where we see the, 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 the Gospels bearing witness to things together and pointing out things together that, that are mutually supporting the truthfulness of the, the writers. So Jesus, zeal for his house, goes in and clears the temple, says it not be a house of trade. That is a place they're using to exploit for their own greed and for their own advancement. They're, they're using what should be a place for God to have people draw near and know that they're forgiven and to hear of his goodness. And instead of that, it's becoming a place where people are making a profit. People are building themselves up. And not only are they exploiting that, but they're preventing others from worshiping and coming to know the God they worship. It is zeal that has consumed Jesus. Have you noticed the only thing in this world that zeal is condemned for seems to be faith? If we talk about passion, we're happy to say, follow your passion. I want to do things that, that bring me passion. I want, to, I want to, you know, I can't imagine just going through life without being passionate about something. 
We want passionate fans, whether it's sports or music. And, and there's almost the condescension if somebody's not passionate enough. You know, they're not a real fan. They're, they're not passionate enough to stick with them. or They're not passionate enough to have all their albums or uh, go as far as Tammy might go to see Bob Seger. They're not you know, completely there. We, we, we love passion in anything. But when it comes to faith, we talk about it being extremist or fundamentalist. Uh, even those words aren't as pejorative outside of the, the understanding of religion and faith. I mean, we're okay with extreme sports. Well, some, some people are okay with extreme sports. You know, we, we, we like extremely intense things, you know, but the idea of extreme faith just brings up ideas of violence or fundamentalist. I, I, I realize now that's being attributed to other faiths, which is pretty bizarre, but the idea of uh, grasping and adhering to the fundamentals of something, it, it, only in faith can that be a pejorative thing. As, as my friend Ken, Pastor Natoka, says, you know, nobody comes and says, I don't want my accountant too caught up on the fundamentals of mathematics. You know, I don't want my doctor to be really concerned about the fundamentals of anatomy. You know, we, we, we want all people to be into the fundamentals, but when it comes to faith, that sounds like a poor pejorative because we don't want people to be, well, let's face it, take their faith serious enough it might change something or challenge something or show something in our life that we might need to alter if we're passionate enough. We want a moderate, cool faith that keeps its proper place in our lives, not consuming us like the zeal for the Lord consumed Jesus. In other words, a faith that's okay as long as it's private and doesn't have any real impact on my life. A respectable religion that doesn't get too excited. Doesn't that sound Presbyterian? But here is Jesus. He is eaten up. He is consumed with zeal for his father's house. And he challenges the sin and the greed. And he overturns the money changers. Now, we follow a zeal like Christ. They're, they're in part, our views about uh, extreme and passion and zeal are distorted because um, that's been attributed to this idea of violence. And in a world where there is violence and an us versus them attitude, there's been too much of a portrayal of religious faith inevitably leading to condemnation or even violent action. But look at Jesus. Nobody was more consumed with zeal for the Lord than our Savior. And what did that zeal lead him to do? Take up a sword? Condemn? No, what it led him to do was to have compassion on the hungry and compassion to preach good news to the poor and to bring healing and to bring forgiveness and grace and to tell those who would follow him, you turn the other cheek and to denounce any violence in his name. Peter, put away your sword. That's zeal for the Lord that follows Christ. And the most passionate followers of Christ, the most sold out to pursue Jesus have always been those that comes along those whom the world despises. They, it sees their heart changed to complete humility and forgiveness and compassion on others. 
That is what zeal looks like for Jesus. That's what being zealous for Christ and his house and his father is. So we see the example of passion. We're motivated not by saying now, okay, go be zealous. We're motivated only when we see who he is and what he did for us. And when we see that compassion given to us, for they, they come to Jesus and they say, what is the sign by which you do this? And here is his sign. Destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it again. But he's speaking of his body. Jesus is showing what he's at work doing. He's showing us a sign of what this is. And, and, and it's on way this is a sign pointing to what he's doing. For Jesus is purging a temple in part as judgment on the distortion of what is going on, but also it's not that he's doing it so they can continue the sacrificial system. He's not purging it and sending them out so that they can continue to worship in the temple. Itself is a sign of the temple's destruction because the fullness of the temple is in Jesus. That is, the temple has been fulfilled. There's not going to be a need anymore for these sacrifices because the true temple is here. You see, the temple was special because it was where the presence of God was, where God Himself dwelled. It had started out as a tent, as a tabernacle. That's where the sacrifices were offered, and, and soon it came and became the temple in Jerusalem. Itself, it was destroyed as God's judgment on His people as they were taken into exile, and they, they came and rebuilt it. At this point, under Herod, it was being expanded and, and uh, continuing to be built. But the, the idea was that it was special because it was where God dwells. And here, God Himself walks in, and they don't recognize Him. And they ask Him, what authority do you do these things? And He is giving a sign that the temple is being fulfilled in Him. There is need for this building, this house of God. The sacrifice himself will be completed in the one who is the Lamb of God. The priesthood itself will be culminated in him. And as his body is the ultimate temple, the ultimate sacrifice, and the ultimate priest, he's doing this in a way that says this is going to be done away with. There's going to be a pure temple and a, and a, a pure sacrifice. And so here he is, he is speaking to those who themselves will destroy the temple when they lead the Lamb of God to slaughter. In exchange for money, He will be betrayed. He will be handed over to be beaten with a whip. He will be driven outside of the city to be crucified. He who is the true temple, that is the Word who became flesh and tabernacled among us, the One who takes away the sin of the world, and on the third day, it is rebuilt. On the third day, He is raised from the dead and He lives forever so that now we have a perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice, and a perfect temple in Jesus Christ. The work of the temple is complete. We enter in through Him. We, we come to the Father through Jesus Himself and so that now worship is not in Jerusalem, but worship is in spirit and in truth by all who trust in Him few points of application. How is your zeal? How is your passion for God? I don't mean excitement and strong emotion. Let me, let me just say honestly, 
the more passionate I get and the, the, the stronger my emotions get, I get quiet. So I'm not saying we need to, you know, generate emotion and make a loud noise, but is there a deep passion enough that you are in love with God and His house and Jesus and what He means? Enough that it does challenge things in your life. Enough that you pursue Him and He's not just something over that you can be calm about, but something in your life that drives everything you do. We can be really passionate for lesser things. Can we be as passionate for the one who redeemed us? The other thing, are we a church that is focused on being a house of prayer or is there temptation to make things about ourselves? You know, I, I read this story and then there's churches I go into, not going to name them, but there's an ATM machine in a gift store. And I'm like, have you not, does your Bible have this passage? Now, I understand, you know, it's good to have a bookstore that can provide resources if you're in an area where people aren't getting the things. And, and there could be needs that are there, but I just there are times I go to churches and there looks to be so many programs and things that are not about God. But I wonder how often we can be tempted to do things to build ourselves, serve ourselves in a way that prevents other people from seeing worship and prayer. And then finally, and this could be the conclusion of every part of John, when they thought of this, when they saw this, they believed in His name. They believed the Scriptures. They believed what Jesus has spoken. And this is all of what John wants us to see is to see the sign, see what it points to, and trust in Him who is the pure temple. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And you've been listening to a sermon from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Presbyterian Church, Covington, Tennessee. Our mission is to proclaim Christ's kingdom through word and deed. You can learn more about us and listen to other sermons at onepc-covington.org or join us for worship at 403 South Main Street, Covington, Tennessee.